So welcome to the Blinked podcast. Um, this week we have Mariah Converse, who wrote the piece Say Praise God in issue two of Blinked magazine. Mariah, welcome to the Blinked podcast. Thank you, it's great to be here. So you went to Jordan as part of the Peace Corps. What made you decide to join the Peace Corps? So, um, well before the Peace Corps, I was, uh, when I was 17, I was an exchange student in Switzerland with uh, Rotary International. Um, Switzerland, where in fact they also, um, in much of the country, say Grüß Gott, God's greetings when you, when you meet someone. Um, and, uh, while I was there, I met an Iraqi refugee who's, he was dating a friend of mine. Um, Clinton was bombing Baghdad at the time. And I decided that I was going to learn Arabic and I was going to sort of go out in the world and try and build bridges between, um, the United States and the Arab world. Um, and so when I finished college four years later, I applied for the Peace Corps and, um, in my interview, this was 2003, April, 2003, I said, I really want to go to an Arabic speaking country. Um, but in fact, they had just evacuated all of the Arabic speaking countries, both Jordan and Morocco, uh, because of the war or the pending invasion in Iraq. Um, and so anyway, one thing led to another a bunch of delays and eventually they reopened the program in Jordan and invited me to come to Jordan, um, which was just sort of couldn't have been more perfect. Right. I wanted to learn Arabic. I wanted to be in the Arab world. And here I was right next door to Iraq, right next door to Syria, right next door to Mm -hmm. Palestine, right in the middle of everything. Um, and, and I, you know, rotary that I went abroad with the first time and, and, the Girl Scouts that I were involved was involved in all my life are sort of programs that believe in in um, building international relationships between people, and so that's what I wanted to continue to do. Um, and also, my mother in the seventies, when my mother was in high school, they hosted a student from Afghanistan for a year. Oh wow! And she. She now lives in Virginia. She came to the United States as a refugee in the 80s um, and lives in Virginia. And we would see her periodically. But I grew up hearing these stories of like Thanksgiving fell in the middle of Ramadan that year. And it made this big impression on me that my grandfather, for whom it was always really important to eat dinner on time every day, um, moved the Thanksgiving feast till sunset. Oh wow! In order to accommodate the uh, Islam of their Afghan daughter, um, and That's so wonderful. I just I grew up with these stories and and about Islam, about Afghanistan, about the world, and I really wanted to go and experience a Muslim country and learn Arabic. Oh, fantastic. Um, so I was wondered how you came to speak Arabic, whether you had it was something that you had been raised with. So perhaps culturally it's something that you've always been interested in, although you weren't taught it as a child. Yeah, so, I mean, I should be clear that they don't speak Arabic in Afghanistan. They speak Persian and some other languages. Um, and so Arabic specifically was not an interest of mine from childhood, but... Um, but definitely through college, I became more aware of the Palestinian conflict. And of course, um, this Iraqi that I had met in Switzerland and, um, it just became more and more important to me to be engaged with that part of the world. And then, uh, September 11th, and there were all of these sort of myths about Islam and, and Arabs that started to pop up in the United States. And misunderstandings and and all of this negative feeling and I know from the places that I've lived that people are the same all over the world right they, yeah. they love their children they love their parents or or they don't you know um and so I think that um it became increasingly important to me to become engaged in that part of the world fantastic and that so that's where you uh joined the Peace Corps to try and build bridges I think for me, what yeah. what's interesting about that is that you're building bridges through communication, which I think is the key yeah. here. Um, so how, yeah. how 
How long did it take you to learn Arabic? That must have taken some study and years of effort. Yeah. So um, when I first arrived in Jordan with the Peace Corps, I knew the alphabet and I knew maybe a dozen words um, and not in the Jordanian dialect. I knew them in, in standard Arabic, which is what you would find in a textbook that uh, no one speaks. So it's not like German where I learned Swiss German in Switzerland, but I could have gone to Hanover and learned, you know, standard German, high German in Hanover, where that's the only thing that people speak. Um, in Arabic, there are only the dialects. And what you hear on, on Al Jazeera and, and uh, what you read on paper is not anyone's native language. It's a, an artificial language in some ways. So, so I came to Jordan with knowing very little. Um, but Peace Corps is extraordinarily good at teaching languages, I find. Um, we did 10 weeks of training that was five days a week, five hours a day of Arabic wow. language training. Um, specifically in the rural dialects that we would need in our communities. Mm. Um, and so that was super helpful. Um, I also, Arabic is like the fifth language I had studied, and so I had some sort of skills built up from learning German and studying some other things. Um, and so, uh, so that helped a lot. And then, you know, they put me in a little village where nobody spoke English. Um, there was the one woman down the hill who became my best friend, who was a beautiful, fluent English speaker, but otherwise no one spoke English. And so if I wanted to have meaningful human interaction, I had to learn it. Yeah. Um, and as sort of a, an applied linguistics geek, I know that like, that's what your brain needs for optimal language learning is like no other option. Mm. Um, if you want to eat, if you want to, you know, have a conversation, you learn it. And so you learn it faster that way. Um, and so that's what I did is just, you know, day by day, even if I didn't understand what was going around on around me, I was sort of sitting in environments where Arabic was being spoken and over time sort of the brain acquires um, consciously and unconsciously. Yeah. yeah. And so you were overhearing um, conversations in rural, um, in this rural region where um, mm -hmm. people would use uh, more religious language. Um, mm -hmm. So is that, is that kind of where it became part of your vernacular then? Yeah. So um, I would say, I wouldn't necessarily say that rural Jordan is more religious than than the cities as a blanket statement. I think Amman, the capital city, is maybe parts of it at least are less religious than some of the rest of the country. But some of the big cities, um, Erbid in the north, Kerak in the south, Shobak in the south, are very religious places. Um, Zarqa to the east, um, again, very... Uh, Big city, big industrial city, but a very religious place. Um, and for me, um, I mean, the piece that's that's in blanks is about sort of I um, I think of myself as either an atheist or an agnostic, depending on the day. Um, and so for me, I thought you know I would go into these villages and I would just be able to avoid it, and it's not necessarily a matter of um it's a it's a weird thing it's hard for me to tell whether it's a matter of religion or a matter of culture mm. that i think women i tell this story about the women sort of insisting that i say praise god when they ask me how are you and and um it's hard for me to tell like as soon as i would say it that that was it like they never talked to me about islam they just insisted that i use the language and if I used the language, then that was that was enough. Would you say then it was almost like, um, you know, when you're teaching um, like young children and um, you have to say, like, say thank you, say this, say that, um, just kind yeah. of general customs that you say at certain points of the day, like say hello. Say yeah, absolutely. And I think part of it, too, is modeling for the children, right? Yeah. That they didn't, I this would come up often in terms of sort of, um, when people would ask me why I didn't wear the headscarf or when people would ask me about sort of 
I kind of, I often knew what they were studying in their Islam classes at school because they would stop me on the way home from school and, Miss Mariah, Miss Mariah, is it true that, that you think God had a baby? And oh, wow. <laughs> so I would have to say, you know, well, I mean, some Christians believe that Jesus is the son of God, you know, and, um, and some Christians believe that it's kind of more of a story, you know, and, um, but I think it was also sort of in the way that I dressed. It wasn't, it was important that I modeled good behavior in front of children. Yeah. Uh, and whether I believed in it or not, it didn't seem relevant. Mm. People sort of, do, do people make sort of an assumption about you being from, from the U.S. and um, that you might come from a certain sort of background the same way that perhaps people from the U.S. or Europe might make assumptions about, about them? Yeah, I think so. I mean, some of, to some degree that was deliberate. When we were in training, I remember our country director one day saying to us all, um, you know, as an, Ameri- as an employee of the American government, I can't ask you what your religion is. I'm just going to tell you. If you're not Sunni Muslim, say that you're Christian. Okay. Or oh, if you're Shia Muslim, say that you're Sunni. And so, because you can be Jewish in in Jordan, but that in, that involves constant, complicated political conversations. Okay. Right? Yeah. So you can choose to do that, but it's going to make your time here more complicated, not unsafe, just more complicated. Um, and, and if you're not Jewish, Christian, or Muslim, people don't have a context mm. for anything else. Um, particularly in the villages where there's less exposure to people from other parts of the world. And so to a certain degree, there was a stereotype of Americans that we were encouraged to not discourage, right? Yeah. And, and in part too, that was because in order for fathers in the village to trust me with the education of their children they had to trust that I was as they say in Islam people of the book I see um, yeah. Christians, Jews and Muslims and and the Sabians and sometimes the Zoroastrians and sometimes the Baha'i are all considered people of the book they follow the same God in the same basic underlying faith Hmm. Uh, and as long as I fell within that category, it was easy for people to trust me with their children. Oh right, that's really interesting. Because yeah. um, yeah. I, 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 I remember from reading your piece, you mentioned that you were from from another faith, and um, that's kind of why you one of the reasons that you found it difficult to to say that. Um, would you mind telling us a little more about kind of your background and sort of the place you were coming sure. from? Yeah, so my parents initially raised us without a faith. Um, my parents were very deeply hurt by Christianity as children and and wanted nothing to do with religion. And my mother's been an atheist since she was five years old. My father's been an atheist since middle school. And, um, and they sort of raised us completely outside of our religious context um, until I was in middle school and... and for a variety of reasons, my brothers um, needed to have a religious community to continue in the Boy Scouts. I see. And uh, so we, we friends of ours, the, the husband was my brother's Boy Scout leader. The wife was my Girl Scout leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a family we knew really well. Uh, they said, we belong to this congregation, this Unitarian Universalist congregation, and we think you would be comfortable there. And so we went, and my parents, um, when they got there, my parents sort of, after after the first visit, my parents came home and they sort of said to each other, you know, I think we always were Unitarian Universalist, and we just didn't know there was a word for that. And the, so the Unitarian Universalists are, uh, um, in, the, in the 20th century, have moved very much away from... Um, mainline Christianity and become a far more inclusive religious community, um, inclusive of atheists, inclusive of Jews and Muslims and, and agnostics and um, nature-based faiths and all of these sorts of things. So the congregation that we joined when I was in middle school was um, a 
the women particularly who ran the religious education program in that congregation had, like my parents, grown up in a Christian or a Jewish community that was very hurtful to them and had rejected that. And so while some Unitarian Universalists refer to their place of worship as a church, we were not allowed to do that. The women who ran the education program would get really upset. Right? Church is not what we do. Church is what those people down the street do. Mm. Uh, what we do is we're a fellowship. We're more accepting. We're a fellowship. Which we found actually quite problematic as youth, right? Because um, there's a degree to which um, their tolerance became intolerance yeah. of the faithful, right? Yeah. Um, but they were many of them involved in in earth based religion, Wicca and and Native American traditions, and so that was sort of the background I had come from was this very distrustful of monotheism, um, and and very much um, interested in in earth based religions. But another thing that we were taught in religious education was that all religions have value. Um, they all arose to meet a certain human need, and they all have, have a certain um, value to the people who practice them. And one of the things that Unitarian Universalism teaches is that you should try lots, you should sort of look into and try out lots of religious traditions in order to make sure that the one that you are practicing is actually the one that that feels closest to the truth to you. That sounds very progressive. Yeah. Um, And so for me, part of wanting to join the Peace Corps was also this idea of I was raised to believe that Islam has value, but I still don't know a lot about it um, and what it means to the people who practice it. and so that was also part of that journey. But it was it was interesting, as I talk about in the piece, that although I had that intention, I also had this conflict that I didn't want to use the God language. I didn't want to, I wanted to observe it, but I didn't want to be a part of it. Yeah. So um, I, I noticed it, you kind of used a couple of examples in the essay where it, you really, really tried not to say, God, um, for example, when you made the, um, you told us about the story when you were eating dinner and um, the only way to stop getting extra food, more and more food, uh, was to, yeah. to say. To say diamond, yeah. Um, and I, I, you know, um, there's this stereotype of the Jewish grandmother, right? That, that like keeps shoving more food at you. And, yeah. And, and um, it's a, it's also it's sort of a, a common thing in, in Arab culture too that sort of they keep shoving food at you and and um, you know there are other ways to to refuse but they're much more complicated and it was such a revelation to me the day that I, I repeated this thing that someone else had said Diamond Inshallah and and all of a sudden it stopped. And it was like this magic thing. Like if I if I use God in this context, people take me seriously. And and um, I don't know. On some level, it feels a little bit disingenuous, right? Like you're just sort of playing the part. Yeah. Um, but on another level, I think it shows a respect for their traditions. Their this sort of idea that I've. I'm understanding now where you come from um, and and trying to meet you there. I guess, um, like, like you were saying, they expected you to say it, but they didn't expect you to uh, to believe it or um, kind of have the religious context behind it. So it was more of a formality kind of. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, maybe the hope was that if I said it often enough, I would come to appreciate it and believe it. Yeah. Um. But I also, intention is really, really critical in Islam. And whatever you do, your intention in doing it matters more than the thing that you've done. Yeah. Um, And so at one extreme, there are some traditions in Sufi Islam, for example, that say if if you are seen giving charity, it doesn't count. There was a a caliph in, in Abbasid Baghdad, so in like the 10th century, 
who would go out in the middle of the night and leave food at poor people's houses because he was of this belief that if if he was seen doing it, it would it would negate because it would be self-aggrandizement, right? Mm-hmm. And it would negate his um, his charity. So um, so that intention is really important that you're doing it out of a pure religious belief and not out of any sort of attempt to to look a certain way or appear a certain way um and that there there's a famous line near the end of the quran there is no compulsion in religion religion so that you can't it is it is not allowed to force someone to convert to islam um it has to be that person's personal choice um there's an interesting story um, from early in my time in, in the Peace Corps, I was sitting in the, in the teacher's room and you know, when you're, when you're living in a foreign country, people will sometimes play this game with you where they try and get you to say things that to them are funny. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've been right? there. Yeah. <laughs> Either because it sounds funny in your accent or because, um, it means something that you don't understand, you know, something rude that you don't understand yeah. or whatever. Right. So they're playing this game with me in the teacher's room. And, I, you know, I've been around the block a couple times by now, so I know not never to say something that I don't understand. Yeah. Right? And But, but they, they don't know how much I know. Um, it's very clear to me that I understand a lot more than they think I do. Um, so I'm playing along with this game, right? And they think they're getting the best of me. And... I think I'm getting the best of them, right? Yeah. And one of the third grade teachers turns to me and she says, okay, Mariah, say this, la ilahi. And I, and I cut her off and I said, no, I'm not going to say that. And she said, no, 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 it's not, it's no big deal. Just say it. Right? Repeat after me. And, and I said, no, I'm not going to say that. That is the Shahada. Um, and if, and if I say that in front of you, seven good Muslim women, that makes me a Muslim. And I'm not going to do that. And from the back of the room, the, the Islam teacher who didn't really want me in her school in the first place, um, she from the back of the room, I hear her say, what would be wrong with that? And I say, well, I mean, nothing would be wrong with that, right? If from the bottom of my heart, I believed that Islam was the true faith, right? Yeah. But if I do it just because you've tricked me into it, then, you know, that's not, that's not cool, right? No, because it's not intention. Yeah. Um, and, and this was sort of the rapprochement between me and the Islam teacher that she was like, yeah, we don't need this like 22 year old coming in to tell us how to teach our children, but she at least recognizes that there's a line Mm. and, and knows some enough about us to be respectful. And may I ask what was your role in the school? I was teaching English. Um, so the first year I taught 10th and 8th grade English, and the second year I taught 1st, 2nd, and 3rd grade English. Um, and also in the second year, there was a class of deaf students in my school, um, which was actually quite unusual in, in Jordan. Um, and they sort of, there's this like, when you don't speak the language very well, you become comfortable with not being understood. Yeah. Um, and so I was the only teacher who was, other than their teacher, who was willing to try and have any kind of a communication with these deaf children. Um, and I was learning a little bit of sign, uh, Jordanian sign language and sort of saying hello in the mornings and things. And they begged and begged and begged their teacher, we want to have English too, right? Everybody else has English. We want to yeah. have English too. Yeah. And so, uh, so I spent a little bit of time teaching them like the alphabet and, and a few things. Teaching English was my primary responsibility. And now you're back uh, back in the States, you're teaching Arabic, is that correct? Yeah, so part-time I'm teaching Arabic to English speakers now instead of English to Arabic speakers. How do you find the transition? So, um, so on the one hand, I'm teaching adults now, and so they understand, they have their own motivations for, for learning Arabic, right? Yeah. Uh, which makes them... It, it, it makes the teaching situation very different. 
from like a public school in in Jordan where the kids are just required to do it, right? Um, and I and I'm finding, um, you know, you always have the people who, you know, my grandmother speaks Arabic. I want to learn some Arabic. My friends are Lebanese. I want to learn some Arabic. My husband is Syrian. I want to be able to speak to my in-laws. Um, there's always been a degree of that in Arabic. Um, this past year, I've also had a bunch of students come to me who, um, the, there was a class I taught in the fall um, where all of my students, either they were immigration lawyers or they worked with immigration lawyers or they um, had gone to JFK airport to protest the Muslim ban. And they had all decided this was a social justice thing for them to learn Arabic. Um, and so um, it was, it's the biggest class I've ever taught, um, 14 students, where I usually have four to six. Um, and they were almost all of them there because of the, the particular political climate um, in the United States. And I think particularly in New York, where there's a large Muslim and Arab population in New York and New Jersey, and, um, and a tradition in New York of pluralism and, and um, anybody who's gone to a New York City public school knows a Muslim. Yeah. And so, so there's this sort of understanding, a, a greater understanding of, of who Muslims are than perhaps in some other parts of the country. Do you find, because obviously it's quite um, a difficult time politically um, for Muslims, um, particularly with, or I'll call it the travel ban. Have you, have you noticed in the, in the, any kind of difference in how people are treated or have you heard any stories from your students about maybe how their family members are being treated? Yeah, so um, definitely Islamophobia and Islamophobic hate crimes have been on the rise over the past two plus years um and uh a, more or less since trump announced his candidacy as uh for president there's been this growing uh wave of anti-muslim and anti-arab sentiment and it has always existed in the united states and i think um, it was already beginning to grow as the Syrian situation got more dire and the, mm. the Bataclan incident in, in Paris and sort of things have been happening and people are afraid. Um, but it became much more noticeable after Trump began running president. And, um, and even here in New York, there have been incidences of, um, you know, girls walking home from school and getting their headscarves ripped off. Um, there's, it's just, it's, it's, and for me, like if it can happen in New York, it can happen anywhere and it must be happening in other places. Um, even more than we're hearing about it. Mm. Um, of course we do hear about it, right? There was these, these two men in Portland recently who were killed defending two girls in headscarves. And so, yeah, it's become really scary. And I think we talk about it some in class. I think I tend to bring it up with my students, not individual incidents, but I've sort of I've woven things into my curriculum as I go on that like I stick little little Islamic terms in there, right? So mm-hmm. one day we, we were practicing the, the Arabic letter that makes the shh sound. And so I stuck in there sharia as a as a word as a just as a vocabulary item mm. right and so we we put it up there we practice it and then sort of i say you know you you've heard this word right you think you know what it means its actual derivation is that uh sharia is a path through the desert to water and that sharia is not about punishing people it's about teaching people the, the path and the same way that in Greek, the word, the Greek word for sin means to stray from the path and that you can always come back to the path. And so I sort of insert these things into, into Arabic class in a very deliberate kind of a way to sort of undermine um, present narratives and that sort of thing. And do you feel that 
kind of that sort of the way forward is sort of just through education and greater communication. I think it's easier for people to hate people that they don't know. Um, yes. Because I think um, this is just uh, me speculating, but um, from what I understand and what I've heard in my own country in the UK about Islamophobia, it's people who don't know any Muslims, who don't have any friends that are Muslims, other people that that quite openly say, I hate you know, this yeah. religion, I hate the people. Um, so do you think it's through yeah. just small, small steps that we can take to yeah. kind of, I guess, um, personalise the religion? Yeah. yeah, so I think about um, the marriage equality movement in the United States and that the moment when that really turned a corner and started to grow real momentum was when they stopped talking about um, sort of fairness in, in filing your taxes and, and the right to, um, you know, and the, the right to marry. And they started telling personal stories about the time that the person I love was in hospital and I wasn't allowed to visit them. Um, and they started, um, Dan Savage is this famous um, gay columnist out in California, and he, he started encouraging people to have dinner parties where you invite, you know, a bunch of your conservative friends and, and, a, and a gay couple. And don't talk about, don't talk about gay things, right? Yeah. Talk about the schools, talk about the weather, talk about, you know, whatever. Don't talk about it. But then they'll go home and they'll say, no, that's we're really nice people. Um, and I'm seeing that happen more and more across the United States. Uh, it's Ramadan or Ramadan just ended today. Mm. And Ramadan has always been a time when Muslims are encouraged to invite other people um, to break fast with them and learn about Islam. And um, and there's been a really concerted effort over the last 30 days um, among Muslims to educate and um, and to invite people to sort of sit down and have a meal. And I think that those kinds of personal interactions are really are really important to sort of normalizing Islam as there have been Muslims in, in the United States for as long as there have been Europeans in the United States. They Absolutely. came over on the on the first ship to Jamestown, Virginia. And so, um, but we don't talk about it. And, and I think the more we can talk about it and the more we can normalize it, um, the closer we'll come to to reducing the, the Islamophobia and, frankly, the danger to Muslims and Arabic speakers in this country. I think that's so important. Even from the UK, um, I've heard stories of hate crimes in the US against Muslims. And I think I think it's just so important um, that people realise that it's, it's hate and it's violence and it's a crime. Yeah. It, it's not a noble thing. I, I'm saying this as a liberal, um, it, it just seems bizarre to me and I, to, to many people listening as well that the, the religion would be an issue because nobody kind of says that about Christians in America, for example. Um, right. So so some of it is certainly fear, right? That, that um, particularly after September 11th, 2001 in the United States, that people are afraid, and the rhetoric of the of the media doesn't help, right? Mm. That that when when a crime is committed by uh, a person of color, the first question is always, are they Muslim? Mm. Um, and when a crime is committed by a white person, the first question is always, are they mentally ill? Yeah, which is a whole yeah. other problem, right? Yeah. Um, but we sort of perpetuate these these fear narratives that that people are really susceptible to fear, um, much more than people are susceptible to hope and and sort of some of these what I would think of as more positive emotion. And so, so there's certainly a fear factor. There's also just a really long tradition in Christianity, a tradition as old as Islam, of demonizing Islam. Um, and if you go back to Christian texts from the 10th century, they're already talking about not only sort of brewing fear around uh, Jews, which I think we're many of us more aware of, but there's this same fear mongering around Muslims since the beginning of Islam, um, and it's 
um, you know, in, in, I studied in the UK for a year and one of the, one of the classes that I took was a seminar on Arthurian legends and it's baked right into that. And in some, in many ways, that's sort of the founding myth of democracy in, uh, in British culture. And it's baked right in there that sort of, um, there's already this kind of, um, fear of the East. And then you move forward into like King Richard and Robin Hood and, and, um, you know, Richard has just come back from the Middle East where the Muslims imprisoned him for years. And, and, um, so has Robin Hood come back from the Middle East where he's been sort of fighting the Muslims. And so there's this like long tradition in British literature of, of fear of the East and, and fear of Islam as well. So, so I think, um, it's always sort of been there, but there's now uh, with globalization, this sort of permission to be a little more open about it. Um, and you mentioned 9-11 there as well, um, kind of terrorism in general. Do you think people are using as a justification for racism? Absolutely. And, and I think one of the things that I have tried to do in my writing, and, and this piece is one of um, now 10 I've had pu- uh, accepted for publication over the last year, they're all in some way about Islam and the Arab world. And one of the things that I've really tried to do is sort of, um, I think people are really afraid. The first thing people, many people say to me when I say I lived in Jordan is, weren't you afraid? And I've, and I've worked really hard on this sort of, this narrative of, you know, people loved me. They, like, I was their sister. I was their daughter. I was, the, they, they loved me as fam- their own family. Um, and they took care of me and they protected me and they, um, they taught me. And, um, you know, I had this one neighbor that like, I had all a great confidence that if I ever did something that was culturally inappropriate, one day I was walking home from school and I, it was hot and I started taking off the, the jacket I had been wearing inside the school where it was cooler and, and, and her daughter was walking with me. She's like, what are you doing? It's like, it's hot. I'm taking off my jacket, right? So later that afternoon, I was in their house, and her mother said, don't ever do that again. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, don't ever take off clothing in public again. And it was this really sharp, right? Like, you know, like when your mother says, don't ever do that again. Yeah, you listen. Right. But then, like, she never said anything about it ever again, right? Mm. Mm. And I and I depended on her to sort of tell me when I was wrong and not hold it against me. Um, nice. And so, I, you know, I'm I've worked really hard at this sort of narrative of of they're not different, mm. right? They're yeah. just people. Yeah. Um, because I do think that when people are afraid, they give themselves permission to do things that they would not do if they were more in a more rational state of mind. And when, when you say um, kind of you had this um, person who was kind of very helpful towards you with um, cultural matters, when you mentioned that you lived in the UK and also you speak German as well, do you find that, did you find that you had to again adjust and assimilate in these countries also? Absolutely. Um, when I first came to Switzerland at 17, I, um, I came home from school one day and my host mother like sat me down at the kitchen table and said, why aren't you out having a beer with your friends? And I was like, well, I mean, they didn't invite me. Right. And, and she gets this very serious look on her face and she says, listen, you are so afraid to make a mistake when you speak that you're missing all of these opportunities and, and, um, and you have to just, just say, just talk, right? Just yeah. communicate, just, you know, and, and so from the very first time I went abroad, there were always these people sort of pushing me to, um, to do a little bit more, to, um, become a little bit more involved. And I, and, and I've almost always lived in communities of, of local people, right? Mm. So I lived with three host families in Switzerland in 
Germany, I lived in the dormitories with other German students. And there was another American in my dormitory, but we made a promise to each other at the beginning of the year that we would only speak German. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, because, first of all, that was why we were there, right? That's to improve our German. Yeah. But also because we wanted to include the the people who, the other people in our um, in our dormitory when we were sort of sitting in the kitchen having a conversation. Um, and so, and, and that's always been important to me and always important to me to sort of learn the local, um, not just the local culture, but the local language. Um, when I lived in Switzerland and I would go into a shop and I would speak high German to a shopkeeper, they would answer me in English. And it would make me so angry. Yeah. Uh, I'm not here to learn English. I'm here to learn German. Um, and finally, a shop owner said to me, you know, if you're going to come in here and insist that I speak a foreign language, which for the German Swiss, high German is a foreign language. If you're going to insist that I'm going to speak a foreign language, it's not going to be German. Oh, it's so going to be English. Um. And so that was the moment that I was like, oh, so I'm not actually learning the local language. And it's actually getting in my way. Mm. Uh, and so when I moved in with my third host family, I said, look, I, I understand Swiss German pretty well now. And I, don't, and I don't think that you should have to speak a foreign language in your home just because I'm here. Um, and so you should speak Swiss German, and if I don't understand, I'll ask questions. Um, until I got to, very quickly, to this point where I couldn't even speak high German anymore. I had become so used to speaking Swiss German. But now I would walk into a shop, and people would assume I was Swiss, because otherwise, why would I speak like that? So um, they, they thought you were a local because you were using the local dialect. and Exactly. Um and and I and I got to the same point in in Arabic too in in Jordan that people would would treat me like I was Bedouin because it sounded like I was Bedouin and why would anybody learn that dialect um, if they you know if it wasn't theirs mm, yeah. um, I I sounded like a hick and why would you why would you want to sound like a hick if you weren't one. Did you did you kind of notice that when you went to Amman that you you had a regional dialect? Yes, absolutely. Um, there's there's a particular letter. Um, it's it's usually transliterated as a Q. In in um, in the rural dialects, it sounds like a a G in English a G. Um, and in in urban dialects, it disappears altogether. Um, and so. For example, when you ask how much is this um, in in rural areas, you ask gadish hagul, and when you're in the city, you ash ask adish hagul. So when I would go into the city and I would say gadish hagul, then you know people would know immediately, right? That's not right. She's not from here. Um, but I didn't sound like I was from America. I sounded like I was from out in the provinces. Um, and so, yeah, it was, and I struggled actually. The second time I lived in Jordan, I lived in Amman and I, it took me three or four months to sort of get used to dropping that, that guff sound. Um, and, and even understanding what people were saying to me, um, with, with that missing letter. Um, I'm just sort of trying to think about it from um, maybe an American point of view or a UK point of view that if there was, um, I don't know if there's a strong accent in any of the particular states, um, perhaps like Minnesota or somewhere, it would be like learning um, the dialect yeah. there and then going to New York perhaps. So I I sometimes say it's like um, it's like growing up in Appalachia in, in the mountains in Georgia. Um, growing up in Appalachia and then, uh, and then going to New York city and, um, or growing up in the Louisiana Bayou and, and with the Creole influence and then moving to San Francisco, um, that, that everybody who talks to you is going to be like, Oh, that's so quaint. Where are you from? 
Yeah, yeah. Is it, is, is it seen as a positive thing, though, generally? Uh, generally not. Okay. Uh, so so those I pick those parts of the country because Appalachia and and the the bayou areas are some have some of the worst education systems in the country mm-hmm. and um, some of the worst poverty in the country as well and so they come with this stigma of sort of um, uh, rural people hick people who um, are not well educated don't know much about the world don't really speak right. Um, and I, and I feel like that is definitely present in the sort of rural versus urban divide in Arabic as well. And you were saying, um, that you, your experiences in Jordan made you realize that people are just people. And it sounds like no matter where you go, one, you know, people are stigmatized, um, based on where they come from in the, in the region, in the area. Um, and that's the same in the world. It shouldn't be unfortunate. It's unfortunate, but it's interesting that even the people that are stigmatized in the United States or the United Kingdom, for example, um, also have the same kind of like north-south divides or urban-rural divides, things like that. When I lived in in Jordan the second time, I was teaching uh, for this English language school called Bell. And there were a bunch of British teachers on, on staff with me. And by coincidence, they all happen to be Geordies. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, so there was a lot of conversation in the teacher's room about sort of what it was like. So they were all Geordies and they had all lived near London. Oh, yeah. And I'll just point out for our listeners that Geordie um, is, um, refers to the dialect of Newcastle. In, it's the northeast of England. And so they, to Edinburgh and that sort of yeah um, near the Scottish border, um, and and in fact one of them had was Geordie and had moved to Edinburgh, so that was sort of an intensification of her dialect, um, and so but they all talked about sort of um, the the difference between sort of the city dialect and the this sort of posh um, sort of um, city people thinking think they're superior to other parts of the country and, and that sort of thing. That so that conversation was always running around me and the oh that's a very city thing to say, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. But I think um what what's sort of key in all of this and what I know you mentioned at the start is why you kind of joined the Peace Corps is that you want to kind of build bridges with people yeah. and communication is is a really real key way to do yeah. it, and I guess it's something that we can all participate in. Sure, yeah, and and so you know, aside from the whole Arabic and Islam thing, I am very conscious of the fact that where I grew up in Pennsylvania was very conservative, very Christian, um, very evangelical, um, and and. Uh, lots of people went into the military out of college to pay for uh, out of high school to pay for college and 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 that comes with its own set of sort of fears and and um, misconceptions and so um, I and I still have a few people that I stay in touch with from high school who are Republicans who um, who have voted for Tea Party candidates, who are the sort of most conservative American candidates. And um, and I'm very aware that sort of being able to continue having those relationships is super, super crucial. Um, that the fact that they even see what I post on Facebook and haven't unfriended me yet. Yeah. Um is this like bare minimum of communication that um, that is really critical to us? Uh, and it was really touching to me. Um, so after the election last year, um, I was when when Trump was elected, I was really upset. Mm-hmm. And and one of those people, uh, one of those conservative libertarian people that I he didn't vote for Trump, but 
but he's a very conservative Republican, um, reached out to me and said, I, it's really important that you keep doing what you're doing. Um, because I hated Muslims until I started talking to you a year ago. Wow. And you're the reason I don't hate Muslims anymore. That's fantastic. It was amazing. And it was so important to me to sort of have that, like, feedback that, like, these conversations, as my friends are sort of cutting off their racist relatives on Facebook, it's really important to me to have that, keep that line of communication open. Um, and more recently, I actually heard from him again on Facebook that his New Year's resolution was not to pick any fights with me in 2017. Oh, <laughs> so that we could maintain this relationship um, and he could continue to have this sort of voice from the other side. Oh, that's brilliant. Um, so, yeah, I think even without sort of bridging a language barrier, as, as I have always tried to do, I think it's still really important for all of us to have at least one of these relationships that's, that bridges a barrier. Thank you very much for, for allowing us to publish your piece in issue two of Blinked. Um, but you mentioned that you've, you've also, you're doing other writing as well. What's your other writing around? So, I mean, the big project is that I'm working on a memoir about my two years of Peace Corps in Jordan. And um, in the memoir writing process, I've been pulling out individual chapters on on various issues of um, of that seem pertinent, to, sort of about women in Islam, or about um, uh, the story I tell about sort of the women trying to trick me into saying the Shahada. Um, it, so I'm pulling out different chapters, and I'm pu- have been publishing them. Um, in a variety of places, mostly literary magazines. A few of them are online, some of them are in print. Um, and the goal is ultimately then to, to write and finish this book and, and get it out in the world. Brilliant. And will you let us know when when you have the, the published yeah, book? Course. And we'd love to talk to you more about that. That would be amazing. Absolutely. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Well, I look forward to, to hearing more about it. And thank you so much for for your time today and for sharing your experience. I feel a lot more positive about the fact that, I mean, there's so many terrible things happening in the world at the moment. There's so much hate. And the fact that something so simple as language, as understanding, friendship can make such a difference. Yeah. And I think ultimately that's the only thing that makes a difference. That all world relations are about individual human um, emotion and perception and relationships. Thank you so much, Mariah. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Carly. It's been a pleasure.